to the latest episode of APPA's Public Power Now podcast. I'm Paul Schimpoli, News Director at APPA. Our guest in this episode is Gil Bindewall, Acting Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity. Gil, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Sure. So, Gil, um, to get our conversation started, um, it's a two-part question for you. Could you provide an overview of the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity and also detail your responsibilities? Absolutely. So the electricity delivery system uh, is intrinsically linked to the way we power our homes and businesses, um, drive our economy and national security, and uh, increasingly to the way we fuel our our vehicles and cars. Um, OE's goal is to help provide the leadership to ensure that the nation's electricity delivery system is secure, resilient, and reliable. And also, at the same time, help to develop pathways to achieving a just transition to decarbonization and electrification. Um, there are four areas that are a key part of our, our research program um, that's within the Office of Electricity. The first is the transmission reliability and re- resilience, which is really focusing on addressing the challenges of the integrated energy systems, primarily at the transmission level. And its focus right now is on sort of harnessing the power of the sensors and data that is out there and applying data analytics and human factors approaches to be able to turn that into actionable information that supports uh, reliability and resilience. Second program is the Resilient Distribution System Program. Um, It's focusing on transformative technologies at the distribution level. Um, that allow for the integration of innovative clean energy solutions like electric vehicles, connected homes and buildings, solar, and and even energy storage. Um, The third area is actually starts, what I'll say, moving from the software to the hardware. Um, It's the energy storage program. And it's really not only focused on, well, I'll say the materials and hardware development, but it's looking at also analytical tools to address the issues around energy storage planning, sizing, um, placement, valuation, and, and broader societal impact. Um, again, looking at it as a, a piece that contributes to the overall system reliability and resilience. And, and the final area within the program is really the, uh, well, I'll say the, another hardware-focused area. It's called the TRAC program. It's the Transformer Resilience and Advanced Components Program. And it's focused on, uh, what I'll say, innovative physical grid hardware um, that carries, controls, and converts electricity. Um, And it helps the electricity system um, adapt to the ever-changing conditions that it faces. Um, It is not only focused on the technology itself, but it's also looking at the domestic manufacturing capability, such areas as transformers, um, and being able to to help bring that forward. Um, So one of the aspects that um, you probably heard is DOE recently announced a, a new structure to help bolster DOE's ability to help modernize America's infrastructure and also support communities for decades to come. Um, and so under this restructuring, DOE has added a new undersecretary for infrastructure. Uh, this undersecretary is really focused on clean energy infrastructure and large uh, demonstration and deployment. This allows the Undersecretary for Science and Innovation to focus on the fundamental science, clean energy innovation, and our core RD&D missions uh, across existing programs and the national labs. Um, A a new office called the Grid Deployment Office, uh, which falls under the Undersecretary of uh, Infrastructure, was created. And this will focus on sort of catalyzing 
uh, the nationwide development of new and upgraded high-capacity transmission uh, for the benefit of the nation. Um, OE's existing uh, electricity delivery division um, will be the cornerstone of that office. And Pat Hoffman, who I'm sure many of the listeners on this podcast is very familiar with, has been asked to help run that organization. Um, meanwhile, the Office of Electricity, which is where I'm from, will continue to provide critical R&D to help modernize and optimize the electric infrastructure. And we're going to continue to work very closely together to support the broader clean energy goals. Um, and with Pat's uh, new assignment, I- I'll be now serving as the acting principal deputy assistant secretary in OE to help continue to provide the leadership uh, that that office has on a national level to support the modernization of the grid. Um, and enhance, as I mentioned earlier, the resilience, reliability, and security of the electricity infrastructure. Great. Thanks, Gil. Um, so actually, your your um, discussion of infrastructure is a, is a great segue to my next question, which is, um, can you talk about, um, with respect to the recently enacted infrastructure law, um, what, what steps is DOE already taking in terms of implementing the law? So first of all, I just want to emphasize that this is not some short-term infusion of funding um, with a mandate to just get it out the door ASAP. Um, This is really about uh, long-term collaboration and investment. Um, Most uh, bill provisions, uh, IHAA, have five years for the funds to be obligated, um, and many will probably take at least a decade to be able to be spent out. Um, So in support of the bipartisan infrastructure law, DOE launched something called the Building a Better Grid Initiative. And um, in January 2022, um, we issued uh, what's called a Notice of Intent, which outlines sort of the need for national transmission investment and the tools DOE has to sort of drive that investment. And this includes things like coordination, planning, financing, permitting, and and R&D. Um, it's really meant to help, I will say, catalyze development of new and upgraded uh, high-capacity electricity transmission lines and really support the tackling of things like climate change or crisis at the uh, national, state, and local level. Um, it helps to create good-paying jobs um, in every region of the country, and it also helps ensure that uh, Americans can access affordable energy going forward. Um, as I mentioned in my wording, I use the word both new and upgraded, right? So part of it isn't just the idea of new transmission projects, but how do we look at maximizing the grid that we have right now, the capacity and efficiency of existing transmission lines? And it can be done uh, several different ways, right? In my opinion, you can look at new technology. Um, we've been looking at things called grid-enhancing technologies, which might uh, help shift from static line ratings to dynamic line ratings static networks to sort of dynamic topology optimization, passive equipment to more advanced power electronics with embedded sensors, et cetera. Um, It also can occur with sort of better uh, visibility. Um, And we're looking at new software and modeling solutions um, to be able to do that. And, And I mentioned earlier with some of the research in the transmission reliability program, it's about really understanding the sensors and the accompanying data analytics that support these decisions as we go forward. And then it's also about the needed communications as well. So we've been really trying to understand uh, things like leveraging reconductoring um, and as much as possible, uh, how to be able to utilize towers and other infrastructure that's in place. The 
second part to it is the idea of looking at new transmission projects. Um, and we're really committed there to collaborating with all the stakeholders and communities and regional and local governments. Um, we've been starting working on different planning studies um, to help uh, identify transmission needs. And again, this is in conjunction with and in support of, of those states and, and regions and tribes that could be affected. Um, it, it's not only sort of, I will say, looking at the regional and national needs, um, but it's all trying to look at it with another granularity of sort of the states in between, right? So uh, it really is meant to be a, a, a sort of a, an all-encompassing, comprehensive look. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, one of the things is financing, um, and that's where I know there's a lot of questions. Um, it, the Infrastructure uh, Investment and Jobs Act provides the UE with several options for financing and investment um, than we've seen ever before. Um, and this is sort of the outlined again in the Building a Better Grid Initiative uh, Notice of Intent that went out in January. Um, and these include financing tools that drive investment of more than $20 billion. Um, this includes $2.5 billion for something called Transmission Facilitation Program, which is really a, a, what I'll call a revolving fund to facilitate development of eligible projects. This includes new and replacement high-capacity transmission lines. Um, it increases capacity of existing lines. Um, it also it can connect microgrids to transmission systems in places like Alaska, Hawaii, and U.S. territories. Um, BIL also includes uh, dedicated about $5 billion to prevent outages and enhance resilience. Um, of the electric grid and hazard hardening. Um, this is done through something called a formula grant, um, and about half of that funding is set up as formula grants to states and tribes. We're trying to work on right, right now sort of what that formula is, um, but the other half of the funding is for utilities. Um, there's another $5 billion that encourages demonstration of innovative approaches to transmission, storage, distribution, um, and also ways to enhance uh, grid resilience. Um, eligible entities uh, cut across the states, et cetera. Um, and finally, we're bolstering uh, the effort through what I'll call the Smart Grid Investment Grants Program. It's about $3 billion. And this, again, is expanding things like data analytics, demand flexibility, smart grid functions, fiber, wireless broadband, advanced transmission technologies. Outside of the, the BIL, um, DOE is also investing in transmission, um, almost more than $3 billion um, for the Western Area Power Administration's Transmission Infrastructure Program and a, a number of loan guarantee programs through the Loans Programs Office within DOE. So um, we're, we're really working diligently to stand these up. More information um, is coming out soon. I, I encourage those that are listening keep an eye on our website um, for those that um, I'm sure can be provided later, but it's www.energy.gov slash BIL. Um, and that will include any uh, funding announcements and the latest information as it develops. Great. Thanks for that uh, wonderful overview of all the different um, activities and um, resources that are available. Um, just wanted to, in terms of my next question, kind of stick, take a step back um, and, and take a, a broader uh, look at the at the grid and the grid, more specifically, the grid of the future. Um, what what is your vision for for the grid of the future in the U.S. in terms of and what work needs to be done to ensure a trans a seamless transition to that grid? And also, 
What roles are advanced grid controls and components playing in that transition? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, so the, there are a lot of changes underway that are affecting the dynamics, uncertainty, and complexity of the power system. Um, and this has dramatically affected the design and operation of the electric infrastructure. Um, a couple examples of this are the increasing distributed energy resources and renewable energy, like wind and solar generation. Um, but there's also increasing electrification of transportation and buildings. We're increasingly, the grid is a mechanism that not only power our homes and businesses, but fueling our, our cars and other vehicles. This is all happening in an evolving context. Um, and this was not necessarily what the, the current grid was designed for. This includes the things as uh, increasing frequency and intensity of storms and things like cyber events. Almost 70% or more than 70% of the country's transformers are at least 25 years old. Um, another 15% are more than 40 years. Um, exceeding their expected life expectancy. Um, age doesn't necessarily uh, determine relevance or, or how it fits within the system, but it really starts, I think, to um, indicate the, the situation which these, this technology was designed for. Um, and I would say being ready for what does the future look like. Um, customers are developing new ways to save money through interactive approaches to energy consumption. Um, we have a, a program within the resilient distribution systems that's focused on transactive controls, which is providing um, price signals uh, or other types of behavioral signals that affect the go out to the edges of the system for the overall benefit of reliability and resilience. Um, new communication technologies have increased and significantly improved understanding of grid conditions. Um, but innovation doesn't work in a vacuum. Um, technology really has been, I will say, builds upon the context that it works in and right, it's adapted for. This includes having a robust marketplace, sort of understanding the regulatory and policy requirements, understanding of the technology before it even is connected to the system um, to try to minimize and mitigate the risks that may come from that. Um, Really, the only way innovation can reach scales of commercialization um, is with, under, well, I'll say technological feasibility, uh, regulatory acceptance, and market robustness. OE is investing in a variety of technologies. I laid some of these out earlier. Um, it's the physical infrastructure, the hardware, such as was part of the track program and energy storage. This includes things like power electronics, lines, and substations that really transfer power across the network. Um, it's new technologies that have great promise, like energy storage, that uh, enables not only um, greater renewable deployment, but also uh, resilience um, for a variety of the, the situations that we're increasingly facing. It's the advanced microgrids, um, which we've been uh, looking at for system resilience by sort of looking at the local generation level, right? Understanding the, the loads and how they can either connect to the grid or work in isolation to meet the demands that are being placed upon them, um, reserving power and, and or contributing to reserve power and grid services. Um, and then it's sort of this all linked together uh, in terms of information technologies. As the grid itself becomes smarter, um, the use of sensors, controls, communications, 
Uh, modeling innovations is something that's near and dear to my heart to develop a better understanding of what's happening in the system. Moving from something that was engineered and we know works because of engineering practice to something that we really start to understand is the relationships and the inherent nature of the power system itself, the science behind it. Um, and this will allow us to be able to better deal with the dynamics, the complexity, and the uncertainty that we're starting to face. Great. Thanks, Gil. So, so for the remainder of our conversation, I kind of wanted to drill down further in terms of uh, the Office of Electricity's activities in microgrids, energy storage, and uh, industry workforce issues. So obviously, you've, you've touched upon um, microgrids. Um, so is there anything further you can um, detail for our listeners in terms of what the Office of Electricity is doing in that area, and 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 also wanted to get your thoughts in terms of how microgrids can benefit um, underserved communities. Excellent timing for that question, and I'll I'll try to comment on that in a second. Um, but I would say um, more and more, I'm seeing communities and utilities actively pursuing the use of microgrids. Um, it, it's become a tool to really address resilience needs. Um, but they're also beginning to, I would say, recognize the value of microgrids from a standpoint of uh, integration of clean energy resources to achieve sort of broader decarbonization and other targets. Um, we recently launched uh, an effort called the Net Zero Microgrid Program that will research carbon-free microgrid solutions and also conduct cross-cutting research to help sort of accelerate the removal of uh, carbon um, generating uh, technologies for microgrids. Um, it focuses on looking at things like dispatchable power supplies, um, and this could include things like hydrogen and nuclear as well as conventional ones, um, balancing renewables using uh, technologies such as ele uh, electricity storage, um, using electronic converters as a grid interface uh, to help ensure the efficient power conversion of renewables and clean energy sources, but also it providing the flexibility um, and ancillary services there. Um, we're looking at extending those concepts to a variety of applications um, from community microgrids to things like commercial and industrial microgrids, uh, focusing really on these interactions, right? These relationships between not only the generation, but the appreciation of the, the resources that are available locally and how they can meet the, the local demands. And we're working with things like standards and regulatory stakeholders to help understand sort of what the compliance and regulatory barriers might be with the deployment. Um, I've personally been involved in, in a couple other areas. You mentioned communities. One of those is Puerto Rico. Um, we've recently completed microgrid design analyses to, to sort of look at what financially sustainable microgrids would be in, in Puerto Rico. Um, and I mean, this has the power to provide multiple towns and, and 90,000 residents. Um, and it's, and it's pretty phenomenal to see the shift from concept to practical implication. And the other one, and, and I'll end on this, is something called LEAP. Um, and uh, for your listeners, I would encourage them looking up more online. But it really is meant and, to look at a variety of pathways to support communities as they're thinking about what the energy future looks like. And LEAP, one of those pathways in LEAP is microgrids and being able to use that as a vehicle, not only to integrate new technology, 
but new types of assessment tools, et cetera, to help the decision makers, to help potential investors understand how microgrids can contribute to reliability and resilience, not only as a system, but also support affordable and accessible um, energy to those that it serves. Um, and, and as I mentioned, I want to also get your thoughts on uh, or your detail, details from you in terms of what uh, the Office of Electricity is doing with respect to um, energy storage uh, research and development. Yeah, energy storage is one that I've been part of, um, tied to for almost 20 years. Um, and it's been, I will say, it's another journey which has been, I will say, an honor to be part of and to collaborate with industry and others. Um, and we're, we're, really close to having what I'll say uh, ubiquitous storage. Over the fiscal years 2017 and 2019, um, DOE invested over $1.2 billion into energy storage research and development. Um, The need to integrate all of these different technologies is becoming increasingly important. Um, We're having more energy options than ever before. Um, energy storage, in a lot of ways, creates the buffer to help with both the dynamics, things like day-to-night shifting, as well as some of the, the transient characteristics, et cetera. Um, but there are challenges to energy storage. Um, we still need longer-duration uh, energy storage that will cover eight hours to 12 hours um, and provide the support the grid will need. Um, in early 2020, DOE announced something called the Energy Storage Grand Challenge, which was a a comprehensive program that leverages unique, extensive expertise and capabilities of the department and the national labs to really push the envelope in terms of what can be done and develop the next generation of uh, energy storage technology. Um, Its key target is $0.05 per kilowatt hour, levelized cost of storage for long-duration stationary applications. Um, This is a 90% reduction from 2020 baseline costs um, by 2030, and this will really facilitate commercial viability for storage across a wide, wide range of potential issues or applications. Um, We also um, announced something called the design and construction of the grid storage launch pad. Um, It's not just about the technologies, it's about enhancing and reducing the perceived risk about the adoption and adaptation of that technology. Grid Storage Launchpad is a $75 million research and development facility um, really intended to expand battery R&D capabilities. It includes almost 85,000 square feet, um, almost 30 research lab spaces, um, which can include testing chambers for things like systematic and independent validation, and testing of new storage technologies. Um, this can cover everything from basic materials to components to prototype devices, all under sort of, I'll say, realistic uh, grid operating conditions. Um, it's, the building should be ready for occupancy as soon as 2023, and I'm really, I'll say, encouraged and excited to see this coming in as an, an asset that can be used for the broader sector to be able to advance and mature storage technology to support its integration into the grid. Um, There was also the long-duration storage shot. Um, This was the second of DOE's Earth shots, which are really about establishing a targeted technical goal that rallies the programs and others around. And this one was, again, reduced on the, basically focused on the reduction of the cost of grid-scale energy storage by 90%. 
um, for systems that deliver 10 plus hours of duration within the decade. Um, it'll, this goal will make it easier to sort of capture and store renewable clean energy uh, for use when uh, energy generation is unavailable um, or lower than demand. Um, this, again, includes things like daytime solar-generated power being used at night or um, nuclear energy generated during times of low demand uh, being able to be used when uh, demand increases. Um, there are no other numerous technologies that also contribute to storage uh, for long duration, 10 or more hours, that could also economically fulfill some of the requirements. Um, they include things like pumped storage hydro. Um, that's the one that's most commonly used right now for long-duration sto storage and, and supporting grid reliability and integration of, of different generation resources at a utility scale. Um, but there's also other types of energy-carrying um, chemicals and, and technologies that, that may play into it as well. Um, we're taking what I'll, I'll call as a technology-inclusive approach. It's, it's basically we're seeing... Um, new technologies, new approaches that are leading to innovation, and we're trying to, in real time, understand how they fit in terms of contributing to um, these high performance and lower cost goals. Um, and we're seeing breaking of new records all the time, which, again, give, makes me both excited and proud to be part of this um, and really proud of, of those that are doing the research um, as they be able to, to develop this further. Um, I, I would be remiss if I also didn't talk not only about the applied energy programs, but areas like Office of Science, uh, the basic energy sciences team there, and RPE. Um, they continue to support groundbreaking research, um, globally competitive, globally important research related to materials um, that has application to all kinds of storage, and as well as early prototypes um, across a, a range of technologies. So. Um, as we start talking about microgrids and storage, this isn't about a single entity. This is about how do we foster and facilitate collaboration that brings the best minds and expertise together to be able to address these important challenges that we need and will continue to need as we go forward um, in, in our reliability and resilience goals. I know the Biden administration is proactively working to address um, the ongoing supply chain issues, um, whether it's the energy sector, for that matter, any other sectors uh, in our economy that could be affected by supply chain concerns. Any, um, any, anything you can talk about in terms of whether it's for even energy storage, for that matter, any other um, energy or electricity technologies that, that your office is, is monitoring or addressing? What I do think you brought up uh, an important topic, which is as we start thinking about the technologies, part of its sustainability isn't just about cost. It's about understanding how to access the materials that can contribute to that. Um, and so as we look at new designs, as we support these collaborative efforts, whether with Office of Science, we're always remaining vigilant to what's happening around us and the context of that and what that may mean in terms of the technology adaptation and adoption later on. And so uh, I think you've, you've laid out something that I alluded to early on, but I'll stress here again, right? It's not just about finding future technology. It's about identifying the pathway to support the adoption of that technology as a, as a means to catalyze transformation for the benefit of the communities and the regions and the nation as a whole. Um, and 
that requires our uh, continual reassessment of changes as, as they happen around us and understanding what that means in terms of technical and programmatic priorities and where DOE can work with the sector, can work with the utilities to be an appropriate partner and to be able to help drive innovation in ways that, that support our sustainable needs. Um, and so these pathways is really one of the, the challenges is really being able to um, think about the planning, thinking about the trends, thinking about the predictions about where things are going, and being able to facilitate and convene those experts to help reduce the uncertainty in terms of their adoption and where and and the technology in the broader scheme. And so, your point on supply chain, I think, is a great one. Um, there are other areas as well, and it's really just being mindful that um, we're not just a moment in time but that we're partners and collaborators to be able to help this transition and, and transformation that's underway and being flexible in terms of the way we do our research and carry out these programs is a critical necessity to be able to ensure that we don't get locked into singular solutions, but we have a breadth of technological, um, potentially technological solutions that allows us to um, be able to address the needs and concerns that we face. Wrap-up question for you relates to workforce, energy industry workforce issues, which is, you know, as you know, um, an ongoing issue, not just for public power utilities, but also obviously cooperatives and investor-owned utilities um, these days. So in that context, could you talk about um, the ways in which uh, the Office of Electricity is addressing energy industry workforce issues? Sure. Um and this is, again, another one that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I was involved under ARA with the Workforce Training Grant, uh, which was about $100 million to support um, a, a variety of, I will say, a skills development and capacity and capability development across the sector. And I, I will just start also by saying that even though I focus a lot on technology, at the end of the day, it's the people that make the transformation happen. Um, your listeners as part of the sector are those that every day are dedicating their time and their resources to ensuring that electricity and energy is delivered to the customers and, and the lights stay on. Um, there's no, I will say, greater relief than being in having lost power and seeing the lights of the utility or bucket truck come down the street and start to restore power, right? that That is something that is really a testament to the service that the, whether you're a planner, an operator, a lineman, or a technician, um, your role and contribution to the grid in this process is um, absolutely critical. And, and you're all the ones that are making, sort of making it what it is today. Um, so from a DOE standpoint, we're really trying to look at what does a pipeline of qualified and diverse employees um, that supports this evolving, complex, and dynamic system. Um, really, we're trying to understand what not only the technological transition will look like and what that means in terms of workforce capacity and capability needs, but also trying to, again, better appreciate the context that it works in. Um, the We've seen sort of, I'll say, after sort of a large wave of retirement, things are sort of coming down. That doesn't mean to become... Um, complacent. I think there's always a need to be thinking about um, how to bring the best and the brightest to bear uh, as, as contributions to the sector. Um, the skills required to sort of plan, build, and operate this grid um, are changing rapidly. Um, and some of that's due to 
smart grid technology deployments, as well as changing grid resources. Um, in some ways, it brings new skill sets, things like uh, data architects, data scientists, data analytics, modelers, um, IT and OT cybersecurity experts, right? These aren't just um, power system engineers, um, but these are people that understand the uh, convergence of the grid and the power system with other infrastructure and technologies like communications and being able to do that reliably. Um, we need additional efforts in training and education, in my mind. Um, this includes things like augmenting the STEM at the K-12 through level, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education programs um, that build interest in the power system from whatever angle you're coming, right? As an electrical engineer, as an electrician, as a, an economist, right? As as social studies major, it, it, there are many different roles to play in terms of contributions to support the grid and to support the continuing reliability and resilience. Um, and things like the integration of electric vehicles, microgrids, and new data science. Um, it's also about working with universities um, to ensure that programs like power systems engineering um, help engage students in things like real-world applications, uh, providing additional focus on cutting-edge technologies. As I mentioned, it's not just wires and towers. It's about uh, applying new sophisticated data analytics approaches, understanding the behavioral science, the human factors piece, so that we can develop appropriate training simulations, simulators, and alarming techniques that help operators and others be able to continue their critical role as part of this, this key system. Um, its ability for continuous education courses and thinking about ways that we can um, actively help the existing professionals to adapt and, and uh, accommodate sort of industry changes. Um, it's, it's about understanding hiring, recruitment, and retention approaches um, that bring the right skill set and balance that's needed for the grid. Um, OE has developed several different programs. We're trying to work with some of the universities. Two that I'm particularly familiar with are, are built on our strong collaboration with the National Science Foundation. One of these is what's called AMPS. It's the Algorithms for Modern Power Systems Program. Um, it's really about bringing in the next generation of mathematical and statistical uh, algorithms for the improvement of reliability and resilience and efficiency of the power grid. Um, this is done in conjunction with the Division of Math um, over at, in, uh, at the National Science Foundation. Um, and it has been going on for about five years. It just was extended for another five years. Um, these are relatively small projects, but they're big impacts. Right, all of that work in fundamental technology, fundamental um, research and mathematics and computation um, pays huge dividends in, in catalyzing additional change. Um, the other one that just uh, was completing was the engineering research at University of Tennessee, Knoxville, um, the current center. Um, this one really brings in uh, the whole suite from high school in through college internships, engagement of students, working with utilities in terms of co-op uh, co assignments, et cetera, right? Th this is really about bridging that role um, and something that I really think is fundamental. Um, not just one, but it also brought in collaborations with Northeastern, RPI, Tuskegee, or um, a variety of other universities there. Also, uh, internally, DOE recently launched the Clean Energy Corps. 
Um, the attempt there is to recruit more than a thousand employees using a special hiring authority that came in under the bipartisan infrastructure law. Uh, the Clean Energy Corps' new hiring portal, um, we're hoping, will streamline the application process. I know that it's that's sometimes a frustration for some of the applicants when they come in, um, but really bringing in and, and helping to look at ways that we can support um, the, the sort of the development of um, the right staff capacity and capabilities that we need. Um, this is really a, a, a critical first step into sort of transforming ourselves and really the largest staff expansion in DUE um, all the way back to its establishment in 1977. So I'm really looking forward to what that um, those that are coming on board, what they, how they help us change, I'll say, our thinking um, to be better partners and collaborators with the industry and the sector. Um, and really look for ways that this can help um, bring about new innovation and, and new approaches to the way that we're looking at the energy future and, and reliability and resilience within it. Great. So, Gil, this has been an incredibly uh, informative conversation, uh, and I'm I'm confident that, that uh, APPA's members will derive a lot of benefit from the knowledge that you shared with us today and, and all the details uh, on the various activities your office is involved with. So thanks again for taking the time out of your day to, uh, to, to chat with us. Um, no, it, it was, yeah, it was an honor to be here really to talk with you and your listeners. And like I said, I, I really want to thank all those in the sector um, for their role in helping make this transformation happen. So thank you for your time. Sure. Thanks. Thanks again, Gil. So thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now. Public Power Now comes to you from the American Public Power Association and is produced by APPA Digital Content Director David Blaylock. I'm Paul Schimpoli, and we'll be back next week with more in the world of public power and the broader energy sector.